This Expert Insights session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 28th of April, 2021. The topic is Disclosure of Mental Illness in Medical Practitioners, Demystifying the Fears About Professional Impacts. On the panel, we have Dr. Phoebe Holdenson Kimura, General Practitioner and Lived Experience Representative, Dr. Peter Baldwin, Clinical Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist at the Black Dog Institute, Dr. Kay Wilhelm, Liaison Psychiatrist at St. Vincent's Hospital, Professor at University of Notre Dame, and Conjoint Professor at UNSW Psychiatry. And chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. So welcome everyone to tonight's podcast, um, looking at disclosure of mental illness in medical practitioners and demystifying fears about professional impacts. Before we get started, we want to give our acknowledgement to country. Um, being the moderator of the Black Dog Institute's um, podcast tonight, I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia as the first people and our traditional custodians. Um, I am zooming in from Kurungai Nation, uh, but of course we're all broadcasting from uh, the separate places. Um, and just to acknowledge that we value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. And I'd also like to pay my respects to elders, both past, present and to the future. And we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So welcome to tonight's podcast. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce to you our panel members and the best way we get uh, we do this is we actually do a little bit of a whip around and get our panel members to introduce themselves so um, I'll get started I'm Carol Newell I'm a clinical psychologist and the moderator for the podcast tonight um, and we might whip around now to Dr Phoebe Holdenson Kimura. Hi everybody uh, thanks for joining us my name's Phoebe Holdenson Kimura um, I'm a GP working in West Ryde uh, and I uh, have a keen interest in mental health and doctor's health. Uh, <clears throat> I also work as a lecturer at Sydney University and I guess in terms of the lived experience representative, um, I have had experience of burnout uh, in the past and so hopefully I can speak a bit about that tonight. Fantastic. Um, and also Peter Baldwin. Peter, Hi, tell everybody. us a little bit about yourself. A little bit about me. I'm a clinical research fellow and clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. Um, so I'm one of the research fellows leading the TEN project, which is a sort of nationwide mental health project for healthcare workers that was set up during COVID. Um, my research area is pretty diverse, um, but lately has been focused on the mental health of healthcare workers, particularly during COVID, and how we build mental health services that are appropriate for healthcare workers. Um, and then my clinical background is really a lot in um, sort of complex psychiatry, so um, either psychosis or bipolar with psychotic features, um, but also OCD, hoarding, and a lot of trauma and PTSD, which is really uh, my favourite area to work in. Thanks, Peter. Welcome. And now we've got Professor Kay Wilhelm. Hello. Hi, Kay. Um, I... 
it's pretty obvious what I am, it says it up there, but apart, <laughs> apart from all of that. Um, in my previous life, I was uh, one of the original people in the Mood Disorders Unit, which became the Black Dog Institute, along with Henry Bredardi, uh, Phil B Mitchell, Phil Boyce and Gordon Parker. And so I've done a lot of research and had long-standing clinical interest in depression and suicidality. Um, and I've I'm also uh, been a member of the New South Wales Medical Board and now Council. I was on it for 14 years and I was chair of the health program for about 12 of those years. And I have a very long standing interest in um, mental health of doctors and teachers, actually. Thank you. Fantastic. Nice <laughs> Welcome, Kay, Peter, and Phoebe tonight. So we'll start off with this first question. I think it just sets a little bit of that groundwork and foundation for a bit of discussion, um, and which is, you know, do medical practitioners have different mental health problems than other groups, Peter? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. So, Big focus for tonight, it, right? It is a good focus for tonight. I guess the annoying answer is kind of yes or no. It depends on what we mean by mental health problem or condition. So in terms of the psychiatric diagnoses that we're all familiar with, um, it's certainly not that the experience is necessarily different for medical practitioners, but there's certainly medical practitioners or different types of mental illnesses that medical practitioners are at higher risk of, certainly working in trauma. Um, I've certainly worked with a lot of healthcare workers who've experienced trauma as a part of their job. Um, but in terms of mental health issues or difficulties, I think the working on the 10 project for the past year has really taught me how diverse the healthcare industry is and how unique the medical culture is and how some of that is really fantastic and how some of that can lead to uh, mental health challenges in the workplace. Um, so that's certainly my take on it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Phoebe and Kay as, as actual mental health practitioners might have other thoughts on that. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't mind some input from Phoebe and Kay. You know, uh, what are some of your, you know, what are some of the most common ones that we typically see? And do they tend to occur at different stages across that, um, you know, across that career trajectory? Um, Phoebe, would you like to have a go at that question? You know, what are some of the, the challenges for doctors? And, and maybe what's the difference between even burnout and depression, for example? Sure. So in answer to that first question, I think um, I think the research shows that there is a high rate of anxiety, depression and suicidality amongst mm -hmm. medical professionals when compared with the general population. Um, certainly what I've observed is that um, times of transition um, are challenging, particularly for medical professionals. So, for example, going from university to internship is a particularly challenging one. Um, and then um, from training into becoming um, a consultant, I think can also be um, a really challenging one. I think for GPs in that first five years of working independently, that's when we see a lot of mental health problems emerge. Um, yeah, in answer to that question about um, the difference between burnout and depression, I think, um, you know, we know that burnout occurs when someone experiences um, excessive and chronic stress at work that can't be effectively managed and then that leads to um, the development of three issues, you know, profound exhaustion, a reduced sense of personal accomplishment, and then depersonalization, which looks like um, reduced empathy towards your clients or your patients. And, you know, that can happen for people 
um, doing all sorts of work, whether it's paid or unpaid work. So, you know, a single mother looking after two children, you know, may experience burnout as well in, in that work. But, um, you know, I think <clears throat> there are some people who believe that depression and burnout are the two sides of the same coin. Um, I know that, you know, we know that they're definitely linked and they share a number of symptoms like fatigue, social withdrawal and decreased work performance. But I do think that burnout is distinct in that it's related to what's happening in the workplace. Um, and it's not a medical diagnosis like depression is. Um, and the other, the other key feature I think about depression that distinguishes it from burnout is that depression is usually characterized by a really profound sense of low self-worth and, and guilt, you know, about yourself and the situation that you're in. And, and generally, um, generally speaking, burnout isn't. And so we wouldn't necessarily see people experiencing burnout have, you know, high rates of um, suicidality um, or, you know, <clears throat> that sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, certainly talking to colleagues, I've noticed that burnout seems to become um, a very sort of socially acceptable way of talking about psychological distress amongst ourselves. Uh, um, yeah, you're, you're nodding there, Carol. Um, and, and particularly in the last year, it seems as though the term burnout's used in almost endemic proportions. You know, people seem to be quite comfortable actually referring to how they're feeling burnt out. Um, and um, it's not perhaps seen in the same way as a sign of weakness um, to tell um, your colleagues that you're feeling burnt out. Um, but I think it is a bit of a double-edged sword to... Um, to label um, that's, you know, your psychological distress um, as burnout. Um, like on one hand, it helps us to be more open about our difficulties um, and talk to others and seek help, which is, you know, a huge problem, um, longstanding problem within um, the medical profession particularly. Um, but I think that it can also um, mask um, or prevent us from identifying a comorbid depressive disorder or even something more um, more serious. And so, you know, I, it is important to make that distinction and to make a correct diagnosis because the treatment's actually quite different for burnout and depression. So I think that that's where we've got to be careful um, in sort of uh, that, that tendency that I've noticed for people to, to label a, a lot of distress um, with, with that label of burnout. Yeah. Absolutely. Kay, you've been in this profession for such a long time. And so, you know, I think we were talking about you supervising students as well, you know, in your teaching role. And so have you, I mean, have you noticed any patterns, you know, in the medical profession where we do see peak rates of maybe burned out or are there certain specialties within the medical field that might make somebody more vulnerable? Well, I think there are different stages of your career which are important. Um, early on, doctors, I mean, I think there are some particular things about doctors and that they often have extremely high expectations of themselves. And so do other people have very high expectations of them. And in the early years, they're trying to make decisions. They're trying to impress pot potential mentors and referees, uh, trying to work at about 150% of you know, what they think should be done. Uh, and at the same time, they've got very long working hours a lot of the time and working, you know, say back in my day, we used to work very long hours too, a 100-hour week. But um, now 
um, and then I think it's appreciated if you work for a long time, you know, it, it affects your, um, your capacity and your skills and probably leads to some burnout. And we also know that uh, very disrupted sleep can lead to mood disorders in their own right. So, and we also appreciate that uh, not eating well does too. Um, but the other thing is there are now two lots of medical students. There are the younger ones who go more traditional course and then the post-grad med students who are older and have another set of issues, uh, particularly when they're feeling in more of a hurry. And in my experience, some of them are trying to do two degrees at once. They're often doing uh, public health along with medicine and they may have young families and I mean that's an incredible amount of stress to put on yourself and I do worry about some of that. The other thing I think that's changed is there was more natural attrition in the medical courses early on. There were years where a lot of people failed up to in the old style at Sydney University about half the year would fail first year or second year med. So that kind of it was a way of, you know, it's a survival of the fittest. And now it's in some ways people are looked after more carefully getting through, but it may mean that the problems come up later as well. Then there are the junior consultants. And I think the most at risk there are procedurists and, and, and anaesthetists who are trying to build up a practice. And they're very busy, perhaps going to three or four different places, just trying to you know, get, en get enough runs on the board. And uh, they can be driving a lot and uh, taking on um, you know, work and sessions that perhaps are not very good and working very you know, long hours. And at the same time, they may have young children as well. And then there are mid-career people who have a lot of perhaps financial expectations, mortgages. They may also have children and parents in that mid-zone that are both perhaps causing issues and becoming sick. And they're kind of the meat and the sandwich in the middle. And one of the peak times for people presenting to the medical council is actually in their 40s. Uh, and I think they're in this, this sandwich group. And then there are the later... Um, the, one of the most vulnerable groups later in life are people who perhaps have been divorced a couple of times and maybe have now younger families and a lot of expectations and perhaps not much super. And uh, they're trying to juggle a whole lot of things. Um, the people at greatest risk, I would say, again, a proceduralist and anaesthetist who've got access to drugs and know how to use them, drugs of dependence. Um and maybe again the puns early in their career, but the the group that we that the medical council worries about are so both solo and isolated practitioners, isolated because of being in the country perhaps, but also people who've drifted out of um, being in practices with other people around to being on their own for all kinds of reasons, and uh, some of them have a lot of demands put on them. Some of them perhaps get into unusual practices because they're on their own and not having a sort of robust feed feedback. And then there are people that have had past vulnerabilities, uh, generally have had poor networks and, and early in life haven't established poor life work balances. So they're yeah. the different groups, I think. Absolutely. Now, you know, given that there are these like, you know, high risk groups, um, 
do you do you get peer support do you get you know supervision because as clinical psychologists like peter and myself you know regular supervision is one of the ways we kind of maintain our well-being get a little bit of that peer support is supervision part of the medical profession it is more for some than others. Um, in psychiatrists, we all have we have peer supervision groups. Uh, there are a lot of groups. I mean, I think with doctors, there's often good teamwork. For example, you get a surgeon and anaesthetist who get on really well. You have some practices that work really well. Uh, so it's they, I mean, CPD is mandatory, but it's not necessarily supervision. But it's one of the differences too between working in a hospital or a you know a general practice or with a group of people as to moving on to working in your own, uh, which has got issues. Absolutely. Phoebe, you were shaking your head for that one in terms of the word supervision, because I've heard through the grapevine that sometimes supervision is seen as like a really bad word in in medicine sometimes. Is that yeah, I'm not sure that it's necessarily seen as a bad word, but um, I think outside of psychiatry, there's no formal program for any other specialty. Um, and I think uh, a lot of GPs do quite a lot of mental health uh, work with, with, with within mental health and um, manage a lot of complexity. That's also true for uh, paediatricians, um, physicians, and actually surgeons as well. Um, but I don't think we're really exposed to this concept that uh, regular supervision, talking things over with with a colleague or a psychiatrist on a regular basis is something that would be um, useful or even perhaps mandatory. Uh, and, and I think we'd benefit so much from it. But I've if, actually been running a supervision group for GPs for 20 years. Have you? <laughs> yes. Well, that's great. Um, it's terrific. They've taught me a lot too. <laughs> that's I can tell you that is... The, a rarity that is not common practice we've had trouble getting you know and more people to join so i don't that's know that's right yeah <laughs> so the ones that come we really enjoy it i think mm, they would and and i've been um before covid um hit i was running um something similar at my practice where we'd get together um once a month in the early morning and talk about cases that have been troubling us more from a interpersonal you know perspective um, or patients that have been impacting us emotionally so you know I think you know I'm sort of preaching to the converted like we all know that this would be useful but the issue is actually integrating it into uh, the medical school experience I think um, and normalizing it as something that um, everybody would benefit from not just not just you know doctors who've got a bent for this yeah absolutely so we might get to the the meat of the podcast now which is you know um what are the common fears and myths for health professionals you know um have about their colleagues or treating practitioner reporting them if they disclose you know that they have a mental health challenge or they've got a mental health diagnosis because it comes up again and again this fear of being reported to the medical board upra okay could you answer that one for it us? sure you know, does common, um common myths around that yes um People, there, there is a mandatory requirement to notify practitioners who um, have an impairment and are placing the public at a substantial risk of harm. I'm saying those words with great emphasis. It's not anyone who has an impairment, but where they are, generally they're, they're placing their patients at harm, who are 
also practicing while intoxicated at work uh, with drugs or alcohol and placing the public again at significant risk of harm or practicing in a way that significantly departs from accepted standards and again are placing the public at a substantial risk of harm. So that's really the test. And the same with medical students if they're seem to be placing their patients at harm. So who does that include? Doctors who are clearly intoxicated, uh, people who are psychotic, uh, and I think people who've had a very a serious suicide attempt and it's unresolved and they're very preoccupied with um, whatever is going on in their lives to a point where they're not functioning. They'd be the sorts of things. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, imagining the scenario, right, for GPs that can, they've got a pretty much a dual role sometimes, right? Let's suppose you've got another fellow doctor come and visit you and, and you are the healthcare provider, um, but at the same time, you are also a mandatory reporter as well, right? If they're, they're not able to meet those competencies. Um, so maybe at this stage, we'd love to, to get an example of at what point would reporting take place for a doctor with a mental health condition, what criteria must be met? And maybe we could get an example of a, an example when a doctor might be reported um, to, the, to the medical well, board. Quite honestly, the best thing and what I try and encourage doctors to do if I'm in this situation is get them to report themselves. Uh, and that's really the way to go. The ones who report themselves do much better anyway. And it doesn't mean they're automatically struck off. It means that, um, I don't know if you want to get me go through the process. And I should say I've written a paper about this, which, I've, uh, which was in the MJA in October 2004. There was a whole um, MJA um, edition on doctor's well-being and it's in there about the process that's involved. But um, the people who get it and report themselves just do better anyway. It's the, the doctors who are still um, battling shame and um, you know their own uh, issues sort of even when they've been through the progress, the ones that we worry about. But so generally, I would say, look, I think, you, you know, you need to, somebody to, to, um, to give you a hand. And I think it would be really good if you report yourself. Um, if people are not sure what to do, whether something is reportable or not, the best thing is to talk to um, a couple of the um, the medical, what are they called? Medical, there's the medical director and um, two other doctors. And I've written down their names here somewhere. Um, the medical advisors at the at the medical council, who are Dr. Keith Edwards and Dr. Martine Walker, and they will and, and people can ring up anonymously and just say, "Look," oh, so ring up about a, an anonymous you know clinician and just say, "Look, this is the situation. Should I be worried? How worried should I be? Do I need to report this?" And they're very helpful. But um, the kind of times when it is mandatory is if you're genuinely concerned about this doctor's well-being and that they are not being able to function well enough to manage their patients. And I guess the only other one that could become an issue is a doctor who is clearly demented. And, um, you know, you worry that they're prescribing the wrong things, you know, they're making lots of mistakes, etc. But this is fairly gross. This is not just a normal everyday uh, situation. Absolutely. So You're this all idea, yeah, <laughs> because there's, I mean, there's this belief, and I've come across it several times across our podcast that 
you know, the minute a mental health care plan is activated, maybe somebody's going to report me the minute it's been entered into the system. And it's clearly not true. If a doctor has depression, but they're actually functioning quite well and they're able, and there's no evidence. There's no need. Absolutely no need. And in fact, the whole point of it is to get doctors to have some treatment and look after themselves. And if they've already gone out and, um, you know, found a program, got themselves organised, the medical board's not interested. But the the other, um, somebody brought up a bipolar disorder. The other one to mention is that there are some doctors who have bipolar disorder or some eating disorder is the other one, some relapsing conditions. And in fact, while I was um, the chair of the health committee, we brought up this new category of about chronic relapsing conditions where people have a problem, but they're clearly well long periods of time. And the idea there is that they have to agree to have a GP, have a psychiatrist or whoever, drug and alcohol, whoever is the appropriate consultant, and they have to agree that they've got a plan, a relapse plan, and that if they, if their treating clinicians are concerned about them, that they give them permission to get in touch with the medical council. In that if they can agree to all of that, and that obviously shows they've got some insight, then they don't have to be part of the program. But they may become part of the program again if they are in the middle of a relapse, but not necessarily. It really depends on how they get on with their treating clinicians and how much insight they've got. Absolutely. So did you want to say something, Peter? Because <laughs> I'm just checking around to make sure everybody has a chance to have a chat. No. Oh, good. oh, I'm just nodding along furiously to everything <laughs> Kay was saying, but it looks like Phoebe. <laughs> you got something to say, Phoebe? Um, sorry, I was just going to add um, that I, I think it's really, really common for these myths to to that it, to be out there, and and I think that they get propagated quite insidiously, particularly um, in medical school. I was really horrified. Um, a medical student told me that she recently went to see her GP um, for a medical certificate because she's been feeling really fatigued you know, coming up to final year exams and traveling really long distances by car to get to her placement. And the GP actually told her that she might have to report her to the medical board. Now, this is appalling. You know, this is somebody who's actively seeking help for fatigue. This is not a mental health condition. It is not a serious, you know, she's not putting anybody at harm, at risk of harm. And I was just appalled that that sort of stuff is still happening. Um, and so I think, you know, um, as a profession, we probably need to work harder at um, getting getting the word out and early um, because these, yeah. And and Kay, would it be Kay? would it be? I mean, to, to to go back to your point of you know you want to encourage people to report themselves. Is that maybe something a GP would also? you know, encourage if they were concerned and they Absolutely. did. Yep. To maybe you you have a chat, maybe it's a good idea to to report yourself and get that extra support. And what happens if someone is reported is that it goes before a committee and they work out is this a problem which is conduct? Is it registration? Is it health? And then they, and sometimes it's both, say somebody is addicted to drugs, but they're also forging scripts. And then if they are under the health program, they ask them to go and see 
a person. Now, it could be a drug and alcohol physician, could be a psychiatrist. It, sometimes there are other medical problems, um, but I'd say 90% of the time it's psychiatric or drug and alcohol or both. So they go and see someone who's a drug, who's a council appointed person. And there are a number of people who do this so that they are familiar with what the, you know, the council is looking for. And they uh, will write a report back about this person and say, look, they've, they're fine. They've got themselves organized. They don't need to be under the health program. Or they may say they, um, I think they do. And the, the other people that get uh, reviewed are people who come up with uh, drink driving. And they don't, what happens to them is that uh, the courts notify a drink driving charge to the medical council and they ask them generally to see someone like a GP or somebody just to see is there a problem or not. Sometimes it's a one-off and sometimes they've got, they're an alcoholic um, and that person will decide whether or not there's any need to actually go onto a program at all or they might talk to them about lifestyle and, you know, they'll give them a bit of a, uh, a, a a talk about perhaps looking after themselves better. So it just depends. And if they're on the program, they then go to what's called an impaired registrants panel. And none of this means they get deregistered. It means they're trying to keep them at work, but working safely. And so they will come up with some um, conditions. They may say they can't prescribe certain things or they can't work more than a certain number of hours, but this is all to help them recover. Um, and then they would be seen every six months by the board appointed person who'd send a report back. And when they feel that they've recovered, they leave the program. Yeah. So it sounds like reporting isn't punitive. It's about no, no, providing no, no, no. support and all. recovery, right? And there's this belief that somehow it's punitive, but it sounds like everything that's done is about getting a doctor back on their feet, um, being able to support them in their recovery, making sure they're not alone on this journey as well. The only time, I mean, there are a few doctors who can't manage. Um, sometimes doctors who become psychotic early on and have, a, you know, become very psychotic and lose a lot of time and perhaps have an enduring illness, sometimes they just can't manage. And in that case, I, I think it's actually important to see if you can find them another career early on where perhaps they can, and there's not so much um, expectation because the expectations I said, I think of a, a junior doctor are pretty big. And if also you have a lot of problem with diurnal mood variation or with emotional dysregulation and you're working very hard with a lot of expectations, that's it's pretty tough. So there are a very few, and I'm talking very, very few, who you might say, look, you know, is it better you think about a different career? Can we help? You know, can you maybe talk to the university about that early on? Because um, one of the things about a medical um, getting into medicine is off, when you go too far down the course, you're actually not fitted to do anything else. So supposing you're a genius at maths, um, it's better, in fact, probably to change courses at the end of first year than, you know, have gone for four or five years and then try and change courses. But that's, I'm talking about one in 100, one in 200, one in 500. I'm not talking about everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. And, let's and, yep. and programs it. like 10, I mean, I think that the more that you've got things that can work with doctors and with um, and I don't recognize their needs and um, address some of their issues. I think it's great. 
So speaking of tin, let's go straight to that. What is, what is <laughs> that? Was tin? a segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kay. We didn't plan that at all. It was very natural. What? How? Tell us a little bit about tin, and how is it different from other mental health services, Peter? Yeah, gosh. So tin's been quite a journey for us. Um, mm. Started. And, and let us define ten first for people who haven't. We've used it short term, right? The essential network. Exactly. Absolutely. The essential network, um, which sounds very vague, but that was the point for us to come up mm. with the name of a service that doctors could have on their phone and wasn't. I have a mental illness. Report me now. That was the <laughs> other option for the name. Um, but it's it's a healthcare service for all healthcare professionals in Australia. Um, and so it's it's primarily a digital first service. So there's a large website with a lot of resources on there, um, but it links into partners and it also links into a ten specific clinic. So our partners offer things like online courses for things like stress, anxiety, depression, um, all of which have been clinically evaluated and they're provided free of charge for people who use the ten website. Um, there's a peer support service for people who want to speak directly to other clinicians who are like them or want to be involved in a group of healthcare workers to get, you know, cross-disciplinary sort of perspective on what's going on. Um, and then there's the, the 10 clinic, which I mentioned, which is a telehealth clinic um, that's staffed by myself and another clinical psychologist and then two psychiatrists. And that gives um, all healthcare workers access to up to five free mental health consultations by telehealth. And that can be for about absolutely anything. So it doesn't necessarily need to be about a specific mental health concern. Uh, we're seeking people for, you know, burnout, as, as as Phoebe said. I think that word has, you know, has been used more times in the past 12 months than it has been in the history of mankind. Um, but it's highly relevant and it really does get that conversation started and it is kind of a, a bit of a safe word in healthcare workers generally. Um, but, you know, problems at home, problems with the financial distress, um, had a few people come in through who have had their first sort of mental health diagnosis in, you know, sort of, you know, as part of the pandemic and it wasn't really an issue for them. So people who are newly sort of exposed to or going to terms with their own mental health issues, it's a whole range of issues. And because we've got clinical psychologists and psychiatrists, we can do therapy, we can do medication, all of those sorts of things. It's not Medicare, so that it's not an item-based thing. We don't have to report an item-based uh, way to the government. We don't have to report who comes through the service. It's not part of an employee assistance program. Um, and all of us are incredibly focused on privacy and confidentiality. So, um, you know, people would have to come with some serious military weaponry to get our records from us. We take, you know, guarding those very, very seriously. Um, and, you know, a, a huge part of that is the conversations we've had with healthcare workers over the past year. Privacy and confidentiality comes up every time. Fear of mandatory reporting comes up every time. And we're healthcare workers as well. We get it. I had a friend who I trained with go through a, a mandatory reporting situation. It was a, you know, it was a vexatious report. There was really nothing to support it, but it was a really stressful experience. So we understand where that fear comes from. Um, in terms of actually going through the process, not necessarily the fear of deregistration, but how horrible it would be, what's it going to do to my reputation, what's it going to do to my client base and my business, all of those sorts of things. Um, and, yeah, really it's, um, it's for anything and everything associated with mental health that healthcare workers might be going through. 
Oh, that sounds like a fantastic service. So have any doctors used attend clinical services? Like, you know, what, what have they used it for? Can you give us some examples? I know we've run through some, some of the services. Yeah, well, yeah. I think we've had more doctors use the service than any other sort of domain of healthcare workers, which we're really excited about because when we started the project, we were told that, you know, you'll never get doctors to use the service, never get doctors to use the service. Um, but slowly but surely, I think we've built just, you know, a, a tiny bit of trust in the medical community that we're, we, you know, we haven't reported anyone so far, I haven't called anyone's boss and told them there's been no breach of confidentiality so far. Um, but also a bit of word of mouth from other physicians who've been through it and benefited from it. And again, we're seeing a range. So um, people who have experienced trauma as part of the either the pandemic or, or particularly early career doctors who go through internships and in new clinical situations where they're presented with really stressful things um, for the first time in their career. Uh, we've certainly also had doctors who are heading towards the end of their career and are thinking about perhaps ending their career earlier than they normally would because of what's been going on over the last sort of 12 months. And not necessarily the pandemic, but I think it's brought a lot of frustration and resentment about the medical uh, industry and also about the healthcare system out for a lot of people. And people are, you know, they're, they're burning out at a stage where they didn't feel like they were burning out. And, and you know, it's an option for them to actually leave. Um Family issues, financial issues, curiosity about, you know, things that are going on for them that they think may be mental illness, but perhaps are more related to burnout and stress. Um, and, and just to put it out there, toxic workplaces. Mm. That's been mentioned as well, right, in one of our questions, I think, right, whether toxic workplaces play a big role. Yeah. I, I think, I too, mean, having telehealth helps. Um, mm. that it, you can slot it in more easily. You don't have to sit in a waiting room for three hours. Um, and it's a bit more anonymous, if you like. I think telehealth has had some big advantages. And I'd say for doctors, that would be a big advantage. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Kay. We've had, uh, it, at first, we thought it was going to be a barrier. and We were told it would be a barrier. But most people have actually elected for telehealth for those reasons. We've certainly had people come into the service who aren't ready to turn their camera on in the initial assessment. That's absolutely fine. We've had people who want to use a pseudonym for their initial assessment. Absolutely fine. And so it does offer those privacy op options as well. Um, so it is maybe a bit of a soft entry into it, but also a really a good one for people who are really time poor. Yep, yep. You can spend one hour instead of having to put aside a whole day, maybe, or half a day. You know that that hour is going to be there. I think that's fantastically helpful. Mm. And, you know, what – oh, Phoebe's going to – yep. Oh, sorry, it, sorry, Peter. I just think it sounds amazing. Um, I, I've had a, a friend contact me and was a bit confused as to whether she would be considered a frontline worker and be eligible for the service. Do you mind just clarifying um, – who's actually eligible to use this clinical service? <laughs> That's a really great question because I was at an event last night for healthcare workers and even um, you know, emergency care nurses were talking about how they're not quite frontline, some of their colleagues are more frontline. So I know that the frontline term has become confusing, but it does appear on the 10 website a lot as well. So really the 10 services for any ARPA-registered um, healthcare worker. So... I guess we're using frontline in terms of all healthcare workers, you know, who are seeing people um, are part of the frontline. 
Um, but it also kind of reflects, I guess, where the project was at the beginning, more of where it is now. At the beginning, we were thinking about helping people who were at the coalface of the pandemic. But now we're at a place where we really understand that the mental health problems that all healthcare workers are facing are much broader, have been around for a much longer time and are probably going to continue for a much longer into the future um, than a lot of people either realised that we're talking about. So um, really now it is a service for anyone and everyone who, fit, who falls into that sort of upper registered healthcare worker bucket. Um, and that's our future focus really is to convince um, the people who are funding it now to continue to fund it for all those reasons. Um, it's not just like magically GPs can have just a, you know, a nice discreet three month window of PTSD and then fully remit at the end of that, just when the funding cuts out. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> that's not how it works in my clinical experience. Um, so yeah, anyone and everyone. And, um, we've had, yeah, so far, such a range of healthcare workers who've had a different a different experience with 10, but, you know, I, I don't want to toot our own horn too much, but we've had lots of really lovely feedback about the benefits that people have gotten from it as well. And what about, you know, we've talked about the medical profession has its unique challenges um, and, you know, the patterns that we see as well and the, and the high perfectionism and standards within the profession. Um, what do you say in terms of, you know, maybe one of the criticism is how could how could 10 possibly understand what I go through if it's primarily staffed, for example, by a psychologist? You know, what could it possibly do to help me? Well, how would you address that concern? You know, I, I need another doctor potentially to understand what I'm going through, Peter. Sorry, I missed the, the middle of that question oh, right my brain's it, not quite working at this time <laughs> that's all right that's all right you know it, maybe some people are ambivalent about talking to a psychologist mm. right it, because we might need doctors might say look I need another doctor to understand what I'm going through how would yeah, you address absolutely. that concern I don't want to seek help because how could a psychologist possibly understand or how could somebody else in the 10 network possibly understand what, what's happening for me yeah, absolutely. Definitely something that we've heard as part of it. And I guess, you know, there's there's sort of two parts of it. I'm a clinical psychologist. I will never understand, you know, what someone, you know, an emergency department physician goes through on a daily basis. Um, so there might be times when it really, the best support for someone is a peer. And that's why we do link into a peer support network as part of TIN. Um, because I know that and probably you know that as well. Um, Carol, is that sometimes, you know, it might just be another ClinSyc that you and I would benefit most from talking to. Um, the other thing about 10 is the the, 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 the the 10 clinic does have access to two psychiatrists. So if it is a medical professional you want to talk to, um, you can request psychiatry services as part of that, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but also in terms of treating mental illness, um, you know, that's really what we're trained to do as clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. So there will be, might not be aspects of your particular experience, but definitely aspects of what you're going through and what you're experiencing as part of your mental health that we will be able to understand and support you with. And we've certainly had a couple of people come through the clinic where really it's been an assessment service and maybe one or two sessions. And then really what they've decided is, yeah, you know what, I really do want a review with a psychiatrist or really I want a group of other GPs that I can talk to about this. And so we've referred them on for psychiatry review, peer support, all of those sorts of things. 
There's so also it, the it, Doctor's it, Health Advisory Service that people can go mm. to if they're not sure what they need. But I think that's perfectly valid that if you can sort out what you need um, through talking to someone. But there certainly are times I think a doctor would rather talk to a doctor, probably about mm. some of the unique pressures that they're under. Uh, like a psychologist would like to talk to a psychologist, but there are some things that are common to everyone. That's mm. that's fine. <laughs> you, you, as long as you're being flexible, that's fine. Mm. Yeah, and that, and that's fine with us as well at 10. You know, it's, there's space for everything. Absolutely. Now, there is a question in here, Peter. I'm not sure if we could answer that. Is the APRA reporting and programs the same for other professions like psychologists as doctors? Um, They're not quite the same. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the APRA reporting is about the same, but what happens is not the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, as Kay was saying, yeah, absolutely, the reporting is the same, and it's the same factors that we look at when we think about whether we need to make a report. But I think the important one to think about, uh, from from my point of view anyway, when I think about it, is the the item about practicing in a way that significantly departs from accepted standards. Um, that's definitely something that requires some consultation with people in that profession. Um, I won't know what accepted standards are for geriatrics, um, so I won't necessarily be able to think that through. Um, but there's also, you know, I mean, there are also other considerations. So we definitely, you know, I really liked what Kay said before about the suggestion of self-referral, and even part of that is having consultation with trusted colleagues if you have them to get their take on it as well. I think that the difference with doctors too is that, I mean, not many other people actually undress people and have them naked, which makes them very vulnerable. They don't um, cut their skin. I mean, doctors do do things that are, um, that mean, I think in some ways they need to be kept to a, you know, a high standard. Uh, and I'm not saying other professions shouldn't be, but with psychologists, it would be more deporting uh, departing from normal standards and some to do with boundaries mm, um, but I think with doctors there are particular things about um, being a doctor I mean chiropractors would have some of the same issues as doctors and physios in some ways um, but doctors do have a because I think what they're doing can have more impact on the person their physical health as well as their mental health there are some particular issues that um Maybe they come up more frequently, but uh, you know. And just would on the point, yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to point everyone to so the chat box as well, where we've put out um, two websites: the Essential Network website, um, which you can click on, and also the mandatory reporting guidelines as well, which is you know it's broad, right? It, it's that first step of evaluating comments competency but afterwards um it can be different for different it's really the risk though mm -hmm. and it's kind of a pub test you know in a way it, most people have an idea of what they would regard as a risk to the public you know in terms of making extremely bad judgments because you're so distressed or so disordered in some way being intoxicated so that you know i think people would agree with the standards that are being used absolutely so 
Phoebe, a question for you. Some people worry that conversations with their colleagues might be misconstrued, right? Because sometimes when we're not feeling well, we might say to a colleague, right, I'm feeling a bit depressed or I'm burning out. It might be something else. How can we help the relationships that we have with our colleagues be ones that feel safe and honest and we can be vulnerable without the risk of reporting? What could we do ourselves if we're hearing from somebody else that they are distressed? Oh, right. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's really important within any of these conversations that you have, you have to, um, you have to honour that that trust that they're putting in you when they come to you and, and say, look, I'm struggling at the moment. Um, and, and they might not be telling you the full extent of what's going on for them because they might be, you know, afraid either of, of a mandatory report being made or that, you know, or they're being affected by um, this pervasive um, sort of stigma that, that exists within, our, within the culture of medicine. Um, and so I think there are some things that we can say within those conversations that can be really helpful um, for whoever it is that's talking to us. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's good to, you know, firstly, as I said, um, to honour their vulnerability and to thank them for their honesty. Um, I think it's important also to try and create a space that feels safe. So, you know, if that means um, perhaps teeing up a time to meet later where um, you might not be in the tea room with everybody else coming in and out, uh, you might... Uh, you actually aren't rushing off to see patients or you're trying to catch one another between patients, which is often what happens. You're sort of running around in a corridor and it's just not a good good way to be doing things. Um, and then thirdly, I think it's actually really important to explicitly say what your views are on mandatory reporting and say, look, um, I, I just want you to know um, that, that I don't believe um, that, you know, that people who are seeking help for anxiety or depression or, or whatever it might be um, and aren't posing any, any harm to, to their patients, I don't believe that, um, that, that these sorts of um, situations require a mandatory report. So actually laying it out quite clearly to that person as to what your view is because unless it's explicitly discussed, they're sort of just trying to guess you know, whether you're one of these trigger-happy uh, people are sort of rare, but everybody's scared that, that you might be one of those or, or whether it's somebody who's, um, you know, more measured and actually understands, as Kay described, um, just how high that threshold is for mandatory But you can report. point them to what's in the mandatory requirements and say, look, you, you, you're nowhere near this. That's right. So I think, but I think like actually... Mm explicitly having that conversation is really helpful and then you'll often see that people you know have have a sense of relief when you explain that to them uh and and hopefully that will allow the conversation to you know you know perhaps go a little bit deeper and you can assist them in accessing further help um I also wanted to give a little plug for um the online course that's available via doctors for doctors uh, I'll, I'll put the website up um in the discussion, but uh, that's actually got some really helpful information and tips as to how to have these conversations with one another, um, either with us seeking help for ourselves or for us helping others. And so whether that's us seeing, you know, um, doctor patients formally in, in the consultation or whether it's more with a colleague, um, I think, I think yeah, just, just acknowledging um, how scary these conversations can be um, and purposely creating um, 
that sense of psychological and physical safety I think is really important. That sounds wonderful. Peter, I, I know you've answered this already, but I think we might want to answer it live for the audience as well. You know, if you're not currently registered as a psychologist um, practicing due to health issues, are you still eligible to access 10? Yeah, I think if you're intending to return to practice, absolutely. So we understand that some people's registration might sort of vary or lapse. Um, but if you're continuing health professional, um, the purpose of 10 is to make sure that healthcare workers have the support they need to do what they do best. Um, we want and need as many healthcare workers working at the moment as possible. So if you feel like this, if, you, if you're not working for whatever reason and you might not have current registration for that reason, but you're planning on returning to work and you think that 10 could be a part of that for you, absolutely get in contact. Absolutely. And the service that you were talking about, Phoebe, was Doctors for Doctors. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I'll just post it up now. Ah, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, now, this question, if a condition, if conditions are on the public register, what impact does it have on the practitioner whilst it is presented as being helpful has possible consequences? Okay. They don't put health conditions on the public register. They only put disciplinary and conduct ones. So on the public register, we'll just say there is a health condition and won't say what it is. Um, but for things like um, fraud, medi-fraud or, um, you know, prescribing of uh, illicit or drugs, you know, that they shouldn't be prescribing, that will go on the public register but not a health condition because it's deemed that that's, that's confidential. That sounds fantastic. All right. We've I'm just putting a couple of things on the chat as well. One is the article about the medical board and it's about critical decision points. And the other one is a module I wrote for doctors in the time of COVID, uh, which talks about looking after yourself and has, if I might say humbly, some good ideas on it. And it's also got links to um, it's got links to one of the Black Dog programs. It hasn't got a link to 10 because I tried to get hold of Sam Harvey and didn't get any response and didn't know whether it was appropriate. So you can tell him that. <laughs> I will, Kate. <okay. laughs> uh, but it's also got some other links to things that I think could be very helpful. And I'd love to actually link it to, to 10, but I just thought I should talk to you guys first before I did. So there you go. But I'll put, you put have the my link. permission. Okay, that would be absolutely <laughs> very much appreciated. Thank you. <laughs> so if we were to do a little bit of a whip around as one of the final questions, and so, you know, almost like just to reemphasize all the points we've been making throughout this podcast, for the doctor out there who's listening to us and maybe struggling with their mental health, what is the advice or the best steps that we would recommend for that doctor experiencing a well-being challenge? So we might start with Kay. What do you think for the doctor I that's think, struggling? They're listening. They've had the sphere. What's, um, what's something you acknowledging might acknowledging it? Mm. Um, I think thinking about and talking to peers. And saying, look, would you be concerned? And maybe thinking if I was going to visit, see me, you know, would I be concerned? But talking to peers and talking to their GP or someone they trust and taking some time out. I mean, I think what 
a lot of doctors do is try and work harder to make up for it. And that's not the right thing if they're already under a lot of stress and they're not quite sure how they're functioning. So I'd be saying take a bit of time out, talk to your peers and talk to and talk to people you trust. And Phoebe's already said how important that is to share. And I completely agree with her. Absolutely. Peter, what about you in terms of the doctors listening in? Mm, I mean, I guess, you know, to be a bit self-serving, log on to 10, <laughs> but it really does have a lot of resources on there about help seeking and the different help seeking options. There's a huge frequently asked questions section that addresses a lot of the concerns about help seeking. Um, and there are a lot of help seeking options on there. You know, Kay also already mentioned speaking to your GP. I mean, GPs are just an amazing part of the mental health system. Um, but I think, you know, if I can leave you with one psychological tip, <laughs> you know, Kay said it perfectly before about the expectations that doctors have of themselves and others and the expectations others have of doctors. You know, if you if you think about one, no other thing other than when you leave tonight, think about how, you know, what's the kindest expectation that you could set of yourself and others as you go about your day? Um, obviously, it needs to be appropriate to your workplace and your workplace culture and the standards that you're being held to. But often our expectations are quite unkind. And that one question can sometimes just cut through and remind us that actually, you know, we don't need to be up here. The benchmark is here for quality care. And that's also probably where quality care of ourselves happens as well. So I guess that would be my my part my parting advice. And Phoebe, what about you? Yeah, so just two quick things. Um one is I think that um, it's just really helpful to talk to anybody, um, you know, whether it's a colleague or a partner, um, a clinician, um, because so so often doctors don't even externalise those internal thought processes that they're having and so and they have a lot of guilt about even finding their job hard or even feeling burnt out or perhaps experiencing anxiety and depression. And, and so without actually you know, putting that out to the world, um, they get sort of, I think that there's a tendency to get stuck in trying to work out whether you have a problem at all. And so just having somebody to bounce off and work out, do I have a problem and should I do something about it, I think is really important. And the second thing is, you know, there's so much self-stigma. We think, you know, yeah, good on that person for getting help. They really need it. But when it comes to us, we're just horrified by the idea of getting help ourselves. So I think, um, the, the good principle is think about what you'd say to a friend who was in that same situation. And I think often that will tell you um, what, what needs to be done. Uh, but so often, you know, we don't, we don't take our own advice and that's really to our own detriment. Mm. It's really about encouraging help seeking tonight and not to be afraid. Um, and also just a reminder as well to just speak to someone, right, just to let someone know if you are struggling, whether it's a peer that you're more comfortable with. We as psychologists, we're all trained to do this. We would love to hear from you as well, um, be able to support you. Um, and so, and also to check out the Essential Network. So I'm going to reshare my screen now. Do, do bear with me. 
um, and we're going to bring up some of these important um, websites. We've already popped it down um, onto the chat box, uh, the Essential Network. We also have Mind Compass uh, as well, which is an online program and a fantastic app and our online clinic. We would love to hear from you and not only doctors, you know, across it sounds like all our frontline workers um, and anyone who is experiencing stress or um, burnout or mental health challenge um, to contact the Essential Network and just, just check us out on the website. Um, a reminder as well that we have um, a podcast every last Wednesday of the month, but we're going to skip next month for May. So please rejoin us in June. We're looking forward to seeing everyone again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.